0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates.
1: Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to my interview with Vanessa Lynch, DNA Crusader with DNA for Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. Huge thank you goes out to Candace Thomas for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts, when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed, and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Kugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook, which I narrated, on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media, all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Recently on social media, you may have seen a hashtag going around, hashtag pass the CO bill, and it's likely that you, like me, had very little understanding of what it meant. DNA is a topic that comes up in many of the cases I cover, and it's always a hot topic in the true crime community in general. For South Africans, We've recently been flooded with terrifying media reports about the backlog of DNA processing in our country, and I'll admit that I had very little factual understanding of exactly where South Africa stood on the DNA issue, and I figured that was probably the case for many of the podcast's listeners too. So I decided to speak with someone who would know. Vanessa Lynch not only deeply understands the current situation around DNA in South Africa, but for 17 years, she's made DNA her life. You'll hear Vanessa call herself a DNA crusader, and I think that title fits her perfectly. She's very simply a phenomenal woman who has come back from what is likely one of the most traumatic losses one could suffer, to fight for real, tangible change in our country. And she's achieved that goal, time and time again. For Vanessa, though, and I think that will come across quite strongly in this interview, this journey has not been about her. It's been about every single victim of violent crime in South Africa. The people you hear me talk about every week. In this interview, Vanessa explains exactly what that hashtag is about, and she provides us with a really clear picture of where we actually are with DNA in this country, and it's not the doom and gloom many of us assume. So let's get into my interview with Vanessa Lynch, DNA crusader and representative of DNA for Africa. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes.
0: Hi Nicole, thanks for having me on your podcast My name is Vanessa Lynch, and I'm really excited to be chatting to you today. I'm from DNA for Africa, and DNA for Africa is a brand, it's a movement that we've created to affect change in Africa, specifically around the use of forensic DNA profiling. Forensic DNA profiling is the most incredible tool for crime resolution, for the identification of missing persons and, and human remains. And no greater place is there a need for this tool than in Africa. So we have resources, we have experts, we create forums where we lead policy in forensic DNA. We look at what each country in Africa that has a need for DNA in the criminal justice system, what do they need? Is it laws? Um, Is it capacity? Is it awareness? Simply... You know, a podcast like this creates great awareness around the uses of, of DNA. So that, that is what DNA for Africa is all about.
1: In the introduction to this interview, I mentioned that Vanessa's journey into the world of DNA advocacy started with a devastating trauma that she and her family experienced in 2004. When I first started this podcast, I'd come across Vanessa's first project, aptly called the DNA Project. Here she explains how all the puzzle pieces fell together after this horrific event.
0: Yes, so the DNA for Africa organization is is an offset of the DNA Project, which I actually started as an NGO in 2005. And this was following the murder of my father, I was a commercial attorney at the time, which is my background was in law, did nothing around forensics or ever thought that I I would be involved in in the world of crime and forensics. And um, this catastrophic event um, occurred on the 23rd of March 2004. I was in Cape Town and I received a call from my mother to say that my father had been shot and actually, my husband's a doctor, and, and she was trying to get my, my husband to um, help her. My dad was still alive at the time because the ambulance hadn't arrived. And it was just this really, this moment in time that I almost felt I was floating above and, and watching my husband on the phone to my mom in Johannesburg. And I, I remember thinking, is this actually happening? And my dad survived several hours. He was shot seven times by intruders who had broken to my parents' home. Fortunately, my mother had managed to lock herself away and they weren't able to get to her. And there must have been, when I look back, so much evidence left at that crime scene. Um, You know, it was a violent break in my dad had fought for his life. And um, when they came to the crime scene, by the time they got there, so many people had been on the crime scene already. Um, By the time the forensic investigators got there, um, you know, people from security companies, family came in to check if my mum was okay, and personnel from, you know, the the ambulance had been there. After my mum left with my dad to go to the hospital where he later died, family members actually cleaned up the crime scene, can you believe it, because they felt that it would be traumatic for my mum to see what had happened when she returned later the next day. So these things were not deliberate, but they happened. And Two weeks later, when the investigators came to our family home, which we'd lived in for 35 years, where where the murder had happened, they said that they were closing the file because they simply had no evidence. And it was a real sort of determining moment. Was I going to accept that? And and obviously, we were all very traumatized at the time. And I just remember at the time saying, no, no, I, I don't accept that. And I started looking at, well, when they said no evidence, what does that mean? I mean, that they had cut through the fence. The police had mentioned that, that they had cut themselves on the fence, that there had been blood on the fence. They had drunk brandy and Coke in the garden and left the bottle behind. As I said, there was a, you know, a violent sort of wrestle between my father, who was wearing clothing. So a friend of mine who was a forensic pathologist, His father was a forensic pathologist in Germany, said to me, Vanessa, there must be kilograms of DNA on that crime scene. Please send me your father's clothing, anything that they have. I have a forensic laboratory in Germany at the time, and I will look for DNA for you if you can't do it in South Africa. And when I went to go and find out, well, where is this evidence? Did anyone keep my father's clothing when he went to the hospital? They had thrown that away. When I asked where was this bottle that we knew they had found, they said, "Oh no, we we can't get any evidence from that. They've thrown it away." When I asked if they'd taken blood from the fence, they said, "No, it had rained and and they hadn't managed to get any in time." And certainly by the time the they'd got there to the crime scene, they said it wasn't worth swabbing for any DNA. And this is what the catalyst was for me starting the DNA project. I looked into the South African situation at the time. I realized that we had no forensic DNA laws that mandated that we should be collecting DNA from crime scenes, that we should be collecting it from arrestees, from convicted offenders. I realized that there was so little awareness as to this incredible technology that we could utilize to identify perpetrators who were on a crime scene. The awareness was lacking at the ground, Amongst the public, amongst first crime scene responders, even amongst highly trained detectives who were just looking for fingerprints and weren't even aware of the value of DNA. And I thought, well, let's start somewhere. Let's start lobbying the government because if you have DNA laws, all of these other things start to fall in place. And having law as a background, I felt that this was something that I could understand. And so the DNA project began. And I launched the NGO together at the time with Rob Matthews, who many of you might have known, lost his daughter, Lee Matthews. She was kidnapped and murdered. And we believed that we could make an effective change to the criminal justice system in South Africa. My mother turned around and looked at me at the time and said, you are fighting against thunder. It was, (laughs) it was a, It felt like that at the time, but it didn't feel insurmountable. And albeit from 2005 to 2013, which is when they eventually passed the DNA laws, it was a struggle all that time to fight for for these laws and, and, and to get the government to capacitate and fund a forensic science laboratory to be able to process DNA. We got there in the end, so... I don't know what you can make of that, but I suppose, you know, if you start somewhere, there's never a guarantee, but where there's a will, there's a way. And that certainly was my will.
1: I tell Vanessa that I'm sitting there with a huge smile on my face. And I am. Of course, her discussion of the brutal murder of her father is just devastating. But my smile comes from the strength that I hear in her voice. We often feel so helpless in situations where our loved ones and our lives have been forever changed or taken by violent crime, and I can't help but feel a surge of intense admiration for Vanessa, and every person like her, who refuses to allow violent criminals to take even another day from them, or even another ounce of their strength. Vanessa has made the journey that many survivors feeling powerless wish they could. She's made a real difference in countless people's lives.
0: Thank you. Now, I often think back to Colin. I say that I would never have chosen what happened to my father to have happened. But deep down, I feel like this is what I was chosen to do with my life. And in many ways, knowing that he didn't die in vain and that there is an effectiveness in the criminal justice system, albeit it's up and down. And I'm sure we'll discuss this in the podcast. Often it's a sacrifice at one that, that can save many. And in many ways, I think this is what's happened. And certainly the, the, you talk of powerlessness. And, and one thing I, you know, sometimes if I'm asked to speak, they say Vanessa's a victim advocate. And I always say I am not a victim. I am an advocate. In fact, I call myself a DNA crusader. And I think we should all change the narrative. I think that Being powerless gives the minority the power over the majority, and we are the majority, and we have to take that power back. So if you're listening to this and you've encountered a crime in one way or the other, you are powerful because you've survived, you're a survivor, and we all need to be crusaders and and fight back in ways that we can, even it's by listening to a podcast such as this, becoming aware of what we can do on the ground to ensure that forensic DNA is preserved on a crime scene. Certainly, we don't wash
1: up crime scenes like that that happened in my father's case. So in small ways, we can all make a big difference. With Vanessa having painted a picture for us of where we were 17 years ago, I asked her how she thinks that scene would be handled differently if it happened today, if at all.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I often think about that. So let's say in terms of my father's crime scene, had they collected the bottle, had they swapped the fence, had people not been allowed to enter the crime scene or been aware that that was the wrong thing to do, and they had managed to find whether it's a hair or sweat on the wall, I mean, touch DNA, you can leave skin cells. Um, had they kept my father's clothing, and I mean, there's almost 75% transference of DNA in a struggle with, with a violent perpetrator. So if all of those things had been collected, undoubtedly, they would have been able to send that. In terms of the law, they would have had to collect DNA evidence and have found it would have had to have gone to the forensic laboratory. And in terms of the law, they would have had to have processed that for a DNA profile. That profile, even though you don't know at, the point, at that point who it belongs to, who those perpetrators are, would be loaded onto the forensic DNA database, which is now allowed in terms of our law. We, we have a forensic DNA database, which holds the profiles of crime scene profiles, which are unknown perpetrators, and known persons, which are either arrestees or convicted offenders. So let's say that even two years down the line, or prior to that two years, there had been a perpetrator who had been arrested for an unrelated offence. It could have been a common assault or or some other Schedule 8 offence, which is where we are allowed to take DNA in terms of the act, and that profile was on the database. The moment you put that DNA profile from the crime scene into the database, it starts this comparative search process. It's looking for like for like, apples for apples. They're looking for identical DNA profiles. And unless you're an identical twin, your DNA profile is unique. So it is one of the most reliable methodologies to identify perpetrators. If that had been linked to a perpetrator or one of the perpetrators of the profiles found on the crime scene, They would immediately have a link. They would have a match and they would be able to then go and investigate that particular person and find out what were they doing on the crime scene. So that that just shows you even five years down the line, if somebody had been arrested, they could have linked that perpetrator back to my father's crime scene. It places that person on the crime scene and they have to explain what it is that they were doing there. So that is how the law has changed, is that now we have to take DNA from arrestees, we have to take it from convicted offenders, and we have to load those onto the DNA database. And that comparative search that continues on a daily basis is always looking for matches to unknown profiles. And whilst there have been a few glitches with, with the law, which we can get into later on a technical basis, theoretically. All arrestees, although it was done on a discretionary basis in the past, from January 2022, it's now mandatory: is that every person of a Schedule Eight offence must have their DNA sample taken. Whereas before, it was still up to the discretion of the officer. And every convicted offender, once this new bill that's just been approved by cabinet, must have their DNA sample taken, and that profile will be added onto the profile. So we are increasing the size of this database. And the bigger that database is, the greater
1: the chance of you linking it to an unknown profile. As I mentioned in the beginning, the DNA backlog in our labs has been something that's been in the media a lot recently. I asked Vanessa if she thought that we have the resources to process all of our current offender DNA.
0: Well, Nicole, you know, this is such a sad state of affairs and I'm glad that it's turning around now because a year ago it it certainly was catastrophic. I say it's a travesty because when the DNA Act was passed in 2013 and it was promulgated, which means that it was made operational in January of 2015, I was appointed at that time to the oversight board, the DNA board as the deputy chair. And the first five years of the DNA board's tenure was that we had to ensure that the provisions of that DNA Act were implemented to the extent that they were provided with funding, that they had to stick to the days within which to analyze samples, collect samples, and add them to the DNA database. And there was so much political will at the time. They were given funding to capacitate their two forensic science laboratories, one in Pretoria, one in Cape Town. They were given training to ensure that detectives were trained to take buckle samples and collect DNA samples from crime scenes. The forensic laboratories themselves, they had because they had funding, their contracts were fulfilled, the chemistry, the instrumentation was maintained. So for all intents and purposes, they were up and running. They were literally finding a hit on their database every hour after about a year of you know entering profiles on the database. In the first two years, they loaded over a million profiles on the database. It was unbelievable. They were really you used to see on a daily, if not, you know, two twice daily, you would read in the in, in the newspaper how people were being linked to their crimes, serial offenders through DNA. And then what happened? There was a leadership crisis. The, the, there was a turnover of leadership in in within SAPS. There was um, withdrawal of baseline funding to the forensic science laboratories. Uh, contracts weren't being awarded. And these forensic science laboratories literally without leadership, without funding, without instrumentation, without chemistry, could not process DNA samples. So they were still collecting DNA samples. They were still collecting them from arrestees, The convicted offenders, they unfortunately had two years to collect DNA samples from the time the DNA Act was passed and that period expired and they weren't able to put the entire population of convicted offenders on the database. So what happened is that they had this backlog that started accumulating. And before I left the board at the end of my five years, we had already notified the minister at the time, you have a huge problem here. You need to get funding to those laboratories. You need to get the chemistry, the instrumentation up and running because you are going to find that the accumulation is going to literally put this incredible project on its knees. And that's exactly what happened. The backlog reached up to over 300,000 cases. And that's not even samples. I mean, that represents over a million samples because each case has a number of samples. So there's been a lot of lobbying in the last year saying to government, this delays justice. By not having this incredible methodology, analyze that they can take it to court and identify offenders, you are delaying survivors of rape and sexual assault justice. It also means that you are not identifying serial offenders because these guys are getting away with murder quite literally. And the push on government to actually get things going did take into effect. And I think they gave about 250 million rand back to the laboratories late last year. They've awarded all the contracts, the the maintenance contracts are back in place. They are starting to process samples again, albeit not at the rate that they were previously, but definitely in the thousands per week. And they've given a zero backlog date for November the 1st, 2022. So I do hope that the great work was done in the first few years is now going to revert back to that and this glitch in the middle where we had this catastrophe is not going to be the legacy that stays with the forensic science
1: laboratory going forward. And it's hugely important to get this backlog under control because we know that, particularly in the case of sexual offenders, these people will most often not just offend once in their lives. And the longer their DNA takes to be tested and to identify them, the more likely it is that they're taking more victims.
0: Hugely important. And, you know, there's a very interesting case of McKee And this guy, he was actually had his DNA sample taken within the two years where we were still able to take from convicted offenders. And and this is the bill I've mentioned that cabinet has now recently approved. That's coming back into law that we are from next year going to be able to take from convicted offenders again. But at the time we were taking from convicted offenders, this guy was sampled. His profile was put in the database. So he was a convicted offender of a common assault. They weren't trying to prove that that he had assaulted somebody because he had already been convicted. He was just, in terms of the law, having his profile taken and put on the database. They put that profile in the database, and it links to 30 unsolved rapes. And those are only in respect of the rapes that people have come forward, because we know that not everybody reports a rape. So here you have a serial offender who, without the DNA Act, would definitely have gone under the radar been released over after a few months of his common assault sentence and certainly would have gone back to raping again. And most of the people that he raped were actually under the age of 60. When you read the, imp- the victim impact statements in court, I read some of them because I was very interested in, in how this case, you know, had been resolved. It is absolutely terrifying Specifically, when you read the psychologist, the criminal psychologist's um, report saying that these types of serial offenders do not rehabilitate well. So, when you talk about the rate of reoffending and the serial offenders, these are people that, unless you actually convict them and put them in prison, they are not going to stop and they will continue to violate and devastate people's lives. And this is very much why the backlog became. A huge issue is that whilst this backlog represented the identification of serial offenders, it was allowing them to continue their rampage. And we must keep remembering why it's so important to facilitate justice in this way, because we
1: save future lives by identifying these people and taking them out the system. I actually got goosebumps when Vanessa told me about this case. Can you just imagine that? This guy was just in for a common assault charge. No one had any clue that he'd committed this extensive series of predominantly child rapes. Vanessa sent me some info about this case, and I'm going to cover it in another episode, because I think it's a fascinating case study of forensics and DNA doing exactly what they're designed to do. To highlight the deep and very real impact that these crimes have, Vanessa asked to share some of the victim impact statements from the Mki case
0: These are between the ages of ten and sixteen, some of them hard affected their lives and i mean it's it's very brutal, but it's very raw, and it 's the kind of things we need to hear because, as you say we we need to tap into that that hurts, and we need to feel bad not bad that you know helpless but that empathetic and compassionate towards survivors and as you say even if it's hashtagging pass the CO bill or being more vocal those small things can make a difference and and save future lives i mean this one starts today i'm a survivor not a victim yes i might be a victim in the eyes of the law but for me i believe that I, i am very strong and i am a survivor i had this sharp pain in my heart and it just wouldn't go away I would sit alone because that time I refused to wave people around me. Because of that, I thought, I'm bad. What have I done? I've done something, blaming myself. I kept praying to remove this horrible memory. I could even see his face like he was laughing at me. Like I said, I am strong. Today, I can face the memory. I can talk about it with having tears going down my chin. Forgiveness is one of the best healing tools. I want to start crying. I'm ready to face court and have the law fight for every young girl he has abused. I mean, it's, it's just so raw that, you know, that was in sentencing. They had to write letters so that the court could feel and sense what this person had done to so many of these lives. And, and these are the kind of things that that were sent. I mean, there's another one. This one says, uh, I became so hopeless and stressed after a year. This guy couldn't be found, but I had a family that was supportive. I got healed, even though the memory of the scene wouldn't leave my mind. Today, I realize how strong I am because I don't allow that memory to destroy my life. I woke up one morning telling myself that I have forgiven that man. I would not let him control me nor block me from moving forward with my life. I believe that one day the justice I deserve will have and be have. And God will answer for me. I have forgiven him, even though he has made me go through a hard and traumatizing time. So, you know, if any of your listeners are survivors and, and, and hearing that, there's, there's also so much hope. And there's so much hope in that. And, and, and I think that the fact that he was given justice as a result, he was put away, this guy McKee, for I think there was like over 40 life sentences. And that was as a result of DNA linking him to his his heinous crimes. And that is how justice can be served. And And that
1: is why we need to fight harder for these DNA laws to be in place. And although being the humble person she is, she probably won't admit it, that is Vanessa's dad's legacy and hers. And that power given back to those victims is the direct result of the work she's done to get all these pieces of DNA legislation passed. And of course, many others have worked with her, alongside her, and taken up the cause just as strongly. But I think that's a powerful thing. When those men walked into Vanessa's parents' home 17 years ago and chose to end her father's life, they had no idea that they were also starting something they were setting in place a chain of events that, through Vanessa's refusal to sit down and accept the status quo, would one day ensure that people like them, who feel it their right to take and devastate the lives of others in South Africa, would be called to justice. If those men hoped to silence someone that night so that they could get away with their crimes, all they did was create a spark that ignited a voice that could never be silenced. These victim statements that Vanessa reads are part of that voice. Looking at that case, we also have to think about how many other um, keys there are out there that may not be caught if DNA samples from their victims or crime scenes, are not timely processed. I said to Vanessa that it's actually a human rights issue. If we're allowing these people to roam free when we have the capacity to identify them, we are allowing the rape and murder of future victims. In fact, we're inviting it.
0: It does. And, you know, you, you talk about a constitutional crisis, which which it was. If you think about in terms of our DNA laws, we can actually take a DNA sample from a victim. We can take a DNA sample from a witness and even from a sexual partner of a, of a rape survivor in order to exclude those people from the investigation if if their DNA profile happens to be found on the crime scene. So those people, the innocent people, we can actually take DNA samples from. But then a convicted offender, we cannot. And as you say, it means, well, when we're talking about the balance of rights here, we're trying to keep society safe. We're allowing the people that actually are violating citizens of, of society, we're allowing them to go out without having the DNA sample. But yet the innocent people who are actually often the victims um, are the ones that are, are, are allowed to be sampled. It, it, it was on its head. It was crazy. And we, and we need to redress this. And that's why I talk about society needs to take back their power and we need to be more vociferous with our rights, and we need to... We've got the most amazing constitution. Um, we can't be silent on this.
1: And we do. As much as we might like to nitpick about the country we live in, our constitution is one of the most robust, advanced, and all-encompassing in the world. Unfortunately, it's not always implemented the way it should be. And this led Vanessa to another point about the constitutionality of holding people's DNA profiles in a database and the reality behind that.
0: And actually, Nicole, that leads me into quite an important aspect of forensic DNA profiling, and I I think it's important to to maybe address it at this point for your listeners. There's often a, a human rights concern around holding genetic information on a database, specifically if it's held by the state. Now, interestingly, I've mentioned to you that I'm currently researching for my doctorate, and this addresses the issues of the ethical issues around forensic DNA databases and how robust they need to be in order to ensure that genetic information is protected and people's privacies are protected in that regard, because obviously genetic information holds information about a particular person. And this is one of the reasons why these forensic DNA databases are specifically such a good methodology. So when you talk about a forensic DNA profile, it's different to your DNA profile. So a DNA profile holds your entire, if you were just talking about your entire genetic makeup, your genome, we don't even know what most of it codes for. That really represents all of the data, some of which we know about. But a forensic DNA profile, they look at the the, the part of your, your DNA, that they call non coded it doesn't code for anything so it's meaningless it's just numbers that the scientists don't know what they they code for not that they don't code for anything but currently in that particular 95% of your dna they have no idea what it codes for and they only need to look at currently in south africa we look at 16 regions of your of your dna out of billions and that's enough to identify somebody other than an identical twin as a unique individual, the way that they calculate um, the probability of, of a random person in the population having the same DNA profile. So in terms of the constitutional aspect of having a forensic DNA profile on the database, first of all, it doesn't give away any information about that particular person at all. It's not loaded with other information regarding that particular person. And it really is just a methodology as an identification tool does do those numbers match up on the crime scene profile to those of the reference profile the known arrestee or convicted offender profile and holding that information on the database it's secure there's there's penalties of fifteen years imprisonment for any abuse, but even if you had to take that information out and look at look at it it's not going to provide you with with any information so I think the fact that our constitution has deem this to be valid. You know, when when a bill passes through Parliament, it goes through the South African Human Rights Commission, it goes through, you know, does it pass constitutional muster? And all of those things have been ticked. And therefore, we should embrace this because, you know, there's more information in your IDE book. I think people put more information on social media as far as I'm concerned in any event. But on the balance of rights, it actually really is important to understand that this is a really good thing in the detection and resolution of crime. And, and it is protected by our constitution. It is protected in terms of our DNA laws. And therefore, we should embrace it and, and really encourage the police to use it
1: more in criminal investigations. That got me thinking about genetic genealogy and how it's been used as an investigative tool overseas to identify both victims and perpetrators through familial connections. When I had this conversation on Facebook a while back and wondered how many South Africans would be up for this being used as a tool by our law enforcement, I noticed that many people had privacy issues with this. And when Vanessa said that for criminal investigations we only use 16 markers and really that holds no pertinent information about a human being. I wondered if that was the same for genetic genealogy databases. I
0: don't know which markers they look at for the genealogy databases, to be perfectly honest, but they're not. I can imagine that they, they look at a number of markers just to see if there's a, I mean, a familial relationship. You, it, it wouldn't really matter which ones because you're going to pick up, no matter which marker you look at in your genome, you've got half of it from your mother and half of it from your father. So along familial lines, you're always going to pick up similarities, irrespective of which marker it is. So I don't know which markers they use for the particular genealogy databases. But one thing that you've mentioned, which, which is um, interesting, is that even although you cannot see any medical predisposition or physical characteristics or any other characteristic from the non-coded region of the DNA, you can pick up familial relationships. So one of the, actually, one of the aspects of my research is to actually propose to separate the Unidentified Human Remains and Missing Persons Index from the National Forensic DNA Database, so that it's not in the criminal intelligence database, so that you can do familial searches on that, and you don't do familial searches on the criminal offender database. And the reason that this is important is that it obviously has to be handled a little bit more sensitively. Now, if people are going to come forward, if they've got missing persons or missing children or unidentified human remains, they want to know that perhaps that there's going to be more genetic counseling there. If, if somebody's father isn't actually their father, they're going to want to have to handle that information slightly more sensitively. The same goes for the genealogy databases, is that if people are going to be searching those, and given that if you put your DNA profile out there, I mean, I know one of the members of my family did it. They would, I said, my goodness, are you mad? What are you doing? And they said, no, they want to know where they come from. I said, well, just know, once you put it out there, you're searchable. You go, well, I don't really care. But your information is out there voluntarily, first of all. And a lot of these companies that are doing this, you do have to sign disclaimers. They do say that if, if for security purposes, I think they are, they do have to release the information, et cetera. So if people are, you know, you haven't done the crime, then I, I suppose they wouldn't, wouldn't worry. But bear in mind, there's always this aspect of familial relationships that might crop up. For some, it might be a, sense, a sensitive issue. I think that utilising them when most, most of those familial searches and genealogy searches are done under strict legislative requirements, they're not just done. Even in South Africa, you, can't, you cannot do a familial search unless you have DNA board approval. And it's very done in a very specific circumstance. And I think the same would happen that if the police were going to use a common or genealogical database, they would have to have some consideration for the familial relationships that would possibly arise as a result of that. But um, yeah, I, I suppose if any family member went missing, or if you wanted to know if there was any indication of finding the the murderer or, you know, or person who committed a crime against your family member, I suppose we would go to any lengths to establish that. I always think that, yeah, you would do anything. So I think if you put your name out there or your DNA out there in a public database, then you must be prepared to face the consequences. Like social media,
1: you know, same thing. I had a good chuckle at how this reminds me of How people start freaking out about companies admitting using their information for advertising generation or other purposes. when Whenever we download apps onto our phones or use our location function, we're already agreeing to have all that information accessed. But when people tell us they're doing it, suddenly everyone freaks out. Yes,
0: that is exactly, funny enough, when the DNA laws were being deliberated, well, the the bill, there were quite a few human rights groups that were shouting being murdered. this is a violation of our privacy, and DNA this and DNA that, and I actually said to them at the time, we used to have robust debates, you can imagine, and I've come a little bit sort of more towards the centre now, which is very important that everybody has their opinion. We can't all have the same opinion, what a boring and and one-sided world it would be, but The laws actually protect rights. They don't invade rights. So when a country puts together a law that actually is there to say, well, there's, we're only going to take DNA from a forensic DNA profile, which is only going to be from these non-coded markers. And we are going to keep it on a secure database. And it's only for the purposes of the resolution of crime and identification of missing persons or remains. You are now providing laws and statutes and protection around the use of that information, whereas previously we had a forensic laboratory, but we didn't really have laws that, that um, regulated that information. So, so laws are a good thing in that regard. And um, uh, as you say, you know, we're very lucky to have supreme law of the land, which is the constitution. Um, and we always have that in terms of any, anything we do, that if there's any invasion, we've got the constitutional court um, you know, in our favor to, to protect our rights.
1: So one of the main reasons I asked to interview Vanessa was to chat about the new piece of legislation that was being tabled. That's where that hashtag comes in. And I asked her to provide us with more information about that.
0: Yes, sure. So the DNA Act, essentially when it was passed in 2015, it provided for the first time the establishment of a forensic DNA database, which was called the National Forensic DNA Database. And that was made up of six indices. One of them was the crime scene profile index, which as it says is from crime scenes. The other was from convicted offenders. That is, retrospectively, all convicted offenders at that time had to be entered onto the DNA database after their sample was taken. That profile was on the database under the convicted offender index. The arrestees, those were people who had been arrested or charged with a scheduled offense, and that profile was put onto the database. Migrated to the convicted offender index or removed if it didn't result in a conviction. Again, we talk about constitutional rights. If you're not guilty, it's removed. There it was also the missing persons and unidentified human remains index of any missing persons that, you know, if, if, you, if you could find a reference sample that you could put on the database in case remains were found or if, if it's a child to be able to identify them. There was also something called an investigative index. And that was, as I mentioned, persons of interest to the investigation, possibly a witness to be excluded or maybe a sexual partner in in a sexual assault case that needed to be excluded. And also one called the elimination index, which is police officers who are often on crime scenes or people working in the laboratories who could possibly contaminate a crime scene and they need to be excluded as well. So all of those indices make up our DNA database. All of those indices can be searched across each other the moment the profile's put in, in, into the database. But the most important ones are the convicted offender and the arrestee index. So important is the convicted offender, which in most administrations, when they pass a DNA act, that's, the, that's normally the only index that is allowed, the crime scene and the convicted offender. And that's because, as I mentioned in that case of Nikki, you have a convicted offender that could be linked to cold cases if they leave prison, they can be immediately linked to a case if they go back to reoffending, And it's also, there's been recent research of a deterrent effect if the DNA is on the database. When this DNA Act was in deliberations, the chairperson Annalise van Beek at the time of the Portfolio Committee for Police said, this is such an important index. How many people are in prison? There were approximately 160,000. She said, how long will it take you to put this convicted offender population on the database? And they said they made a presentation at the time, the, the SATs together with the forensic laboratories, and they said it'll take 18 months. She said, well, I'm going to give you two years, and then that must be done. So they put this two-year period in the act, which was a mistake in retrospect, because what they didn't do was put an extension to that two-year period in case they didn't manage to get to. To all 160,000 prisoners at the time. They even allowed retrospectivity that a person who had been convicted prior to the DNA Act being passed, even though the law wasn't in place before they, when, when they were convicted, they still had to submit their sample. And it's unusual to have a retrospective clause, but s- such an important index it was. Unfortunately, what happened after the DNA Act was passed is that there was an interface issue between the prisons and the police. Prisons use prison numbers, police use CAS numbers or ID numbers, and they, they, they had to try and find a common interface in order to ensure that they were all talking about the same person. So it took them six months before they could start the process. And as you can imagine, they didn't finish in time. The DNA board, at the time I was on the DNA board, we realized this was happening and we immediately put an amendment in place and said, we need to extend this provision immediately so that we can continue with this convicted offender sampling program until all convicted offenders are on the database. Because remember, at the same time, you've got arrestees. If they're convicted, it automatically gets migrated. But you still need the guys who are are convicted. That was in 2018. We now, 2019, 20, almost three years later that has been sitting with the minister of police. And initially the minister of police said, no, he didn't want to sign it because he wants a population database, which is every citizen in South Africa must be on the database. Now, besides the fact that, from a financial and from a capacity point of view, we already can't get our criminal population on the database. We've got three hundred thousand cases in backlog. How are we going to get fifty million people? Constitutionally, it's just never going to happen. I mean, we—I've just mentioned to you, arrestees' profiles have to be removed. So, this was—I mean, it was a real sticking point. And unless the minister approves it, it doesn't go to cabinet. So, the lobbying that's been done in the last year by advocates, by NGOs and groups and, and people talking out about this, such as myself, has been to say, this is crazy. How can we be taking DNA profiles from arrestees who aren't convicted, from investigative um, persons of interest who are actually mostly innocent and not from convicted offenders who have the, the least rights in terms of our constitution? So I think the, the government capitulated, and I think two weeks ago, on the fourth of November, if I recall correctly, they put an announcement out to say that the cabinet has approved the bill. So it's it's called the Criminal Forensic Procedures Criminal Law Forensic Procedures Amendment Act, but it's just colloquially called the Convicted Offender Bill, and this needs to go back to the Portfolio Committee. They've already said that they will approve it because they know they've been waiting for it, and then hopefully that will be put into law the moment it's approved by the portfolio committee. It gets passed by the national assembly, and then it's put back into law and they can start sampling the convicted offenders immediately that's promulgated. so that's why there was this you know this great move towards getting the population they got about sixty nine thousand criminal population on the database, then the program stopped. And then once this goes back into law, it'll continue again. So that's the history and and where we at in terms. But, you know, the, the public must keep the pressure on because we need to see that bill back in the portfolio committee this year. And I still haven't seen it on the committee schedule.
1: And that's something that I really wanted to get across as well, is how can we as ordinary citizens help to, as Vanessa says, take back our power? and start contributing to getting these pieces of legislation in place, which have already clearly shown huge promise.
0: Thanks, Nicole. Well, I mean, we've, we've seen just with the lobbying of this, how social media has really elevated this um, issue. And, uh, and I think that's why the government capitulated. Everybody was tagging at or Ramaphosa past the CO bill. There was a hashtag past the CO bill, um, you know, CO meaning convicted offender. And I think we should keep, I think we should keep doing that. I think that hashtagging and saying, is the bill back in in parliament? Has the portfolio committee received the bill to, you know, to vote on it? When is that going to happen? Is it going to be in 2021? I mean, these are the kind of tweets or, um, you know, mentions that people can put on their social media so that that pressure keeps up. You know, governments are notorious for capitulating to pressure. And then as soon as you release the pressure and you let it down, they go like, OK, well, that one's backed off. We'll just, let that, we'll just let that one lie for a bit. We mustn't do that. We must keep highlighting it because it is a constitutional crisis. We cannot allow convicted offenders to be released without having their DNA samples taken, even if it's just at the moment those that are literally being released so that they are not released without having their samples taken. Um,
1: this is urgent. And in this vein of conversation, I'd seen on the DNA for Africa Facebook page that they had a campaign running called My Voice for Justice. This is what Vanessa had to say about that campaign.
0: Thanks. Yes. So my voice for justice is a hashtag that we started towards the beginning of the year. And it was led initially by an incredible advocate, Mbali Shongwe, who's a rape survivor. And I first heard her, funny enough, talking in Constitutional Hill, the, the real soapbox, you know, standing on a box and talking that, that we used to do in the old days, where you stand up at Constitutional Hill and you, you know, you, you talk to your audience about the injustices. And she spoke about the injustices in terms of her case, um, the sensitivity training that was required by SAPS and um, how badly her case was handled. She joined my voice for justice, this campaign that we launched together with three other rape survivors, all of which had very different. There were four young women had very different experiences with regard to sexual assault and gender based violence. And, and my voice for justice, if you go onto DNA for Africa on, on our Instagram account, you'll see those short videos where they speak of it. And it's really quite harrowing. It's really about survivors' voices leading the way. We have a culture in South Africa where People are ashamed of what's happened to them and they are ashamed to speak of their experiences. And culturally, it's quite damning if you, you know, if, if if you have been raped or if you're a survivor of a sexual assault. And we need to change this narrative. We need young women and young survivors of, of all genders. To come forward and understand that, first of all, if they've had an injustice as a result of our criminal justice system, uh, they need to speak out about it. Because unless we know about this, we can't correct it. They also need our support. They need us to put our virtual arms around them and say, that is a terrible thing that has happened to you. We are so neutralized. We are so desensitized that we hear of, of, and I'm sure on, on your podcast, you hear of these stories and you can listen and go, that's a terrible story. And then you just go and have dinner. We need to reach out a little bit further than that. And we need to be less desensitized and more sensitized to the struggles and the trauma that so many South Africans face because of gender-based violence and the failings of our criminal justice system. So this is what this this movement was about my voice for justice. And so many incredible people came forward and spoke about it. And And this is where the, the DNA backlog was really highlighted. And I think that Mbali's voice specifically stood out really strongly because even the office of the presidency, when she presented at our conference, they tweeted and they said, what would you like us to say to the minister about this? You know, how can, and, and I think a lot of that, those voices propelled the government to stop saying we're going to do something about gender-based violence and actually do something about gender-based violence. So the DNA backlog, for instance, funding the forensic laboratories, fulfilling the contracts, getting the private-public partnerships in place. They're now looking at private laboratories assisting with the backlog. Those are tangible things that my voice for justice, I think, has has in a way helped perpetuate effective change. So I, I hope it continues and I hope that it's sad we have to do it in the first place. I always say to Mbali, I'm so sad that such a young, incredibly strong, powerful woman who's so compassionate has to even have this conversation. But I think we should be so grateful that she's been willing together with other survivors to to do that and speak out and speak their truth.
1: At the end of this episode, I'll repeat all of the various hashtags and programs we can start to follow and pay attention to, but I do recommend that you head over to the DNA for Africa social media pages and listen to the stories of these survivors, so that we can start to sensitize ourselves again, that these are real human beings. I'd seen that Vanessa and DNA for Africa had a few of their own podcast episodes out, so I asked Vanessa about that too. So, well, what I did was, um, I interviewed, well, I just did a few
0: interviews of some amazing people, um, that were working in, in this arena. There was one with a rape survivor, Wanku Kanya in Kenya, and she's developed a low, uh, cost rape kit. You know, in Africa, a lot of the, especially in the rural areas, they just don't have facilities. They don't have, hospitals and forensic nurses and facilities where they have rape kits that are not going to degrade over time. So should they develop a low cost, which governments can afford, um, very simple to use, actually uh, survivors can use them themselves if they're raped and it's like a a long swab and they can close it up and it's preserved. So it doesn't degrade. It's tamper proof and it can be sent to the laboratories and utilised. So I mean, what incredible work, you know, people are so innovative around, you know, <laughs> who've, who've come out of a of a traumatic situation, but have created that. There's also um, somebody I spoke to in Somalia who, out of nothing, um, has created a forensic laboratory, and he had a lot of his training outside of Africa in America, and his call to action was, We have so many incredible experts from Africa, and a lot of them leave. And if you're listening to this, come back. We need your expertise. And many people, you know, such as Dr. Shire in Somalia, he doesn't live there permanently, but he comes back and he brings his expertise back into his country. And he provides support and he provides training so that um, people, local people can, can then Build up on on his expertise, so that was also a really beautiful call to action. Another one was um, regarding human trafficking. We people just aren't aware the extent of human trafficking in this country in Africa. It is absolutely out of control. There's an incredible young woman, Malaka Oringo. She she was trafficked out of Uganda. She now lives in Europe. She has an incredible story to tell and and trying to help survivors get back into society and also how to identify human trafficking i mean through covid i've heard of stories that you know people sell their children it's just horrendous so yeah that's it's been a very interesting journey learning about everybody's you know what, what they do and gosh in africa we this is what dna for africa stands for we are so innovative we're so passionate we have so much to give and we we need to pool
1: our resources more i think Vanessa also had some interesting information to share about the possible establishment of a humanitarian DNA database.
0: That is something I'm I'm hoping to work with with various parts of Africa next year where these databases um specifically to try and combat missing persons and human trafficking where DNA is taken from missing persons as well as family members, and because people are trafficked so quickly, and they're, 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 the first thing that happens, their identification is often taken away from them. Children don't know where they've even come from, and DNA is an incredible way to identify people who have been trafficked, um, specifically where they have no identification to prove who they are. So that is a another area that is that needs work in Africa. You know, you, you've got two aspects. You've got Forensic DNA, which is the use for you know crime resolution. And in the investigation of crime and then you have this very important aspect of of dna and that's for humanitarian reasons and it really can be used differently in both ways and as judiciously in both ways but we need to tap into both of those and the humanitarian databases haven't really been used to their full potential so whilst we are focusing mainly in this conversation around a criminal justice dna database i do think in the future we we need to put the same amount of effort into establishing humanitarian databases with trusted parties, with more collaboration around different organizations like the United Nations or the you know, ICRC Red Cross to, to really try and use the forensic DNA for, for those kind of crimes
1: um, to So watch the space, Nicole. I'll be back. <laughs> and I'll hold you to that, Vanessa. When Vanessa mentioned this humanitarian DNA database, my mind immediately went to the many unsolved missing person cases I've covered, and how, if any of these people have been trafficked, that would be hugely beneficial. In addition, South Africa of course has a huge population of people that come here from our neighbouring countries, and this may also assist in helping to give the names back to the many unidentified deceased people that end up in morgues in South Africa, who may well be from other countries.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, we had a a podcast recently between the Western Cape Forensic Toxicology or Pathology Department, who were talking about the burden of unidentified bodies and the thousands of unidentified bodies, as well as with Missing Children South Africa and the international community of Red Cross who deal with a lot of issues of missing children and um, missing persons and unidentified human remains throughout Africa. And that's exactly one of the issues, is this lack of identification. And one of the things that they would, would like to see happening is that the mandatory DNA sampling of everybody that comes in, every you know, all of the remains, and then also to separate that database so that family members, specifically because of that familial relationship, are more willing and not deterred by putting their information on a humanitarian database it's not a criminal database and i think that's why that separation becomes important and they reckon that i mean i heard the story the other day from missing children south africa where they had literally they could have identified the person back to their family within 24 hours and then a year and a half later they sort of connected all the dots so you know these kind of um, travesties and 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 the trauma can you imagine not knowing for a year and a half Longer. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the cases are longer. So, you know, for for closure and resolution, it's just something that it's humane. We need to be humane about this. And that's one of the reasons, exactly as you say, people need to be able to repatriate their loved ones or know that they've
1: been found, even if unfortunately they, you know, they've died. And of course, that just makes me think about the families of missing people that have been missing for 10. 15, 20 years, who just don't know if the body of their loved one has at some point come through a mortuary in South Africa and been buried without their names. I've had the pleasure of meeting some truly amazing people through this podcast, and I must say that Vanessa Lynch is most certainly one of the most interesting and powerful change makers I've come in contact with and her power does not come from the fact that she's able to get legislation tabled, necessarily. I think her power comes from a much simpler and more profound place. The love of a daughter for her father. I'd like to thank Vanessa for chatting with me and sharing the information she has. I think we all have a far clearer picture of where we are today with DNA, and I think you'll agree that once the CO bill is finalised and we start collecting and processing that convicted offender DNA again, we can all look forward to many cold cases being solved. In response to an open letter to the President of South Africa regarding the passing of the CO legislation, Mr Rappaya, Secretary for the Police Service, had the following to say in regard to the progress of this. Quote, It was recommended to the President that 31 January 2022 be determined as the dates on which Section 2 of the Criminal Law Forensic Procedures Amendment Act 2013 shall come into operation, making the taking of buccal swabs in respect of persons charged with Schedule 8 offences obligatory in terms of section 36d 1 of the criminal procedure act the required draft proclamation has been submitted through the office of the minister of police to the president for his consideration once the proclamation has been approved and signed by the president it will be published in the gazette end quote so this is our next mission as vanessa says we need to keep up the pressure. We need to keep tagging, mentioning and talking about the CO bill until it is gazetted and that first swab goes into the mouth of the first convicted offender. Until that database starts flying again, looking for matches, finding connections. Because every match is not just an unsolved case. It is an answer that a family out there has been waiting for. It is the justice that a victim deserves. I highly recommend that you head over to the DNA for Africa website and social media pages and follow this organization's vital work. Vanessa Lynch has achieved amazing things in her quest for justice and I want to also acknowledge that for some survivors of violent crime Just waking up every single morning and facing a world that no longer looks the way it should is a victory. And it is for those survivors that the rest of us can be voices. Thank you for listening to my interview with Vanessa Lynch, DNA Crusader and representative of DNA for Africa. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.